forgot one very important thing in my announcements, and that is that would you join us? Uh, you're welcome to, but uh, we would love for you to also join us for cake after the service. Uh, kickoff Sunday, I think, is you have to have cake. I think they go hand in hand. So there's cake, and we would love for all of you, you're all invited to join us uh, for cake outside. And if it rains, we will huddle under the uh, little overhang there, and we will do our, our best. Uh, today we carry on our series uh, in overcoming. And so we're talking about overcoming. Uh, last week we talked about overcoming insecurity and what it means or how we can overcome insecurity. And some of these will be like that. Some of these will say, here's how we can overcome something. And sometimes it won't necessarily be that. Sometimes it'll just be pointing out things that we should or might need to or have to overcome in our lives. So each one of these overcoming series is going to be a little bit different. Uh, excuse me. If you, missed, uh, if you missed last week's service, it is up on the YouTube page as well as the whole sermon is up there as well. Uh, today I want to talk about another thing that I think most of us will have to overcome in life or, or have had to overcome in life or perhaps later on in life or perhaps we're dealing with it right now and that is self-importance. Today I want to talk about overcoming self-importance. So what is self-importance? Well, self-importance, if you look it up, it's defined as an exaggerated sense of one's own value or one's own importance. So this exaggerated sense of one's own value or one's own importance. It's right there. Another word could be arrogant or egotistical. Uh, this idea that you are extremely important. Basically, this next photo shows that basically you think the world revolves around you. The sense of everything revolves around you. And so today we're going to look at three people who battled with some issues of self-importance in this story we're going to look at. And every time I've heard preached on this, or this area we're going to look at, they highlight one guy or the, the, the main guy. They want to talk about that. And I don't want to talk about really either one of those at length. Uh, so you might have never heard anyone talk about it this way, but you might have. Um, we're looking at an entire chapter of scripture today, though. So we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're talking about the story of Naaman and Elisha. Now, you might be familiar with Naaman, and you might be familiar with the story of Naaman and Elisha, and if you've heard sermons on this, they probably talked about Elisha and the great healing, or perhaps they talked about how Elisha healed someone who was at one point his enemy, or they, perhaps they talked about Naaman and how he switched and all those things, but we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about three people in this story. Now, I'm going to try to summarize 2 Kings chapter 5 for you, because it is a lot, and I thought about, well, maybe we'll just read the whole thing, and I thought, well, that's going to take the whole sermon. So I'm going to try to do my best to summarize the story if you're not familiar with it. If you're familiar with it, hopefully this is a refresher. And if you're not, you can feel free to find it in your Bible uh, and see if I'm lying to you or if this is actually what happened. Uh, so we're talking about Naaman. Now, Naaman is a soldier in the army of Syria. He's one of the king of Syria's top commanders. He's kind of like a general in the army. He's a top guy. He's an important guy. He wins battles. He's powerful. He has great influence. He's kind of a big deal. He's, he's kind of a, a big shot in Syria because of his place in the army. They are a country that goes to war, and he helps the king win war. So the king really likes this guy. Now, Naaman likely also had a lot of servants because of this. Now, when it happens, when, when you go on a war or you go out for a raid in this time period, you come back with the spoils of war, which would be things like gold and other precious things, but it would also be things like people and cattle. And they would take people and be like, well, now you're my servant, and so now you're going to come serve me in my house. So the commanders especially would take people back. And so Naaman has some of those people in his household. Now, there's something else really important about Naaman that we need to know about this story, is that he has leprosy. 
Now, leprosy back then would have been kind of a catch-all word that is a generic term for any type of skin disease. So we often read leprosy in the Bible, and we assume it's the leprosy that we know, which is properly called Hansen's disease. But it's actually not always that. It could have been that, but leprosy would have just generally been something of a skin disease. If you had a skin disease, they would have said, well, you're a leper. Regardless, this skin disease would have been something that either results in some sort of disfigurement or death or something like that. And this isn't great news for the king of Syria. And this is important to know in the story because Naaman is so important in the army that this isn't great news. The king of Syria does not want one of his top guys to die from this disease. He doesn't want one of his top guys even being sick and missing battle, like calling in, like, oh, I can't make the war today, boss. Like, I'm not feeling great, right? So he's not feeling great about this and he's a little bit worried. Now, one of Naaman's servants, or I guess his, his wife's servant, knew of a guy from her home country back home. She was from Israel, so she knew of a guy back home. She says, I know of a prophet that, that could, could help. You know, it's a shame that my master from back home is not here because, because he could help. He could help in this situation. And so she tells the wife, and the wife tells Naaman, and Naaman goes to the king. He says, king, I know you're worried about the sickness, but one of my wife's servants knows of someone in Israel that she says could help. As the king writes a letter, he says, well, go, I'll write you a letter. They're at a time of peace right now, Syria and Israel. So he says, I'll write you a letter and, and you can take it to the king and, and take whatever you need, gifts, bribes, take whatever you need and go and get healed. And this is where I want to start diving into the story a little bit because this is where we're going to pick it up. We're going to look at what happens when Naaman arrives to the king of Israel. So we're going to look at how the king reacts. We're going to look at how Naaman reacts when he meets Elisha for the first time. And then we're going to look at how one of Elisha's servants reacts afterwards. So we'll start first with the king of Israel. Now, this is likely a time period of peace between Israel and Syria. They fought all the time. And so this was likely a time of peace. And in, in walks in this time of peace, in walks the Syrian commander. So he walks in to see the king. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 and 7. And so it says, he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, and now as this letter comes to you, Behold, I have sent my servant Naaman to you so that you might cure him of his leprosy. Now, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider this now and see how he is just trying to start a quarrel against me. And so how did Joram react here? In plain terms, the king of Israel freaks out, right? He freaks out. He, he, gets, he gets kind of shocked and blown away. He spazzes out and he goes, what is going on? Like, why would the king of Syria send a guy to me to heal him? Like, I'm not God. Why is, why is this king of Syria sending a guy to me to get healed? He's, he's obviously just trying to start a war. This is all a plot. He's trying to start a war. He's trying to goad me into a big fight here. So the king of Israel immediately goes, this is all sinister. This is some sort of a plot. And he wants to start this war up again. He tears his clothes, which at this time, tearing your clothes is a sign of either great distress or great anger or great anxiety or worry. So he tears his clothes in this kind of, this, this position he's in. And why does he react like this? And I think it is because he assumes as king, the world revolves around him. Everything that happens has to do with him. He reads this letter about Naaman being sent by the, the king of Syria to come get healed in Israel, and he assumes that it's all a joke or it's all a plot to start a war with him because everything is about him. 
all of a sudden, King Joram, the king of Israel, has forgotten that he has a God who does miracles, that they know a God who does miracles, that God has done many miracles for him and for his people. So all of a sudden, he's forgotten this God. Joram automatically assumes that this is a, a pretext in order to war. For one minute, he doesn't stop and go, oh, well, uh, leprosy. You know what? Our God is a pretty great, miraculous God, and I know a guy, like, I know a guy named Elisha. Maybe he can help. Let me go get Elisha. He doesn't stop for a minute. He just automatically assumes he's trying to start a fight, right? And, and so, uh, yeah, sorry. So, so this king, um, this king assumes all this about himself. He assumes he's the center, and he's struggling with what I think is just too much self-importance and too much the world revolves around me, and everything everyone does affects me or stems from me. Henry Cloud was talking about this, and he wrote, we all need to overcome the basic egocentricity of life, the inborn feeling that the world revolves around me. Whenever we view others only in terms of how they affect us, we're in big trouble. Right? And that's what Joram was doing here. He was viewing the king of Syria, he was viewing Naaman's leprosy only in how it affected him. He didn't stop and go, oh man, you have this horrible disease, let's see if we can help. He only viewed how the leprosy could affect him. Joram didn't stop for a second to consider it. And sometimes I think we do that. Sometimes I think we don't stop for a second. We don't stop for a second to think, maybe this has something to do with someone else and not me. Maybe this is not all about me. Maybe this isn't a big thing that is made up to do for me. Maybe it's not up to me to think that the whole world affects me and everyone and everything they do everywhere is about me. Maybe you do that at work. Do that at work or do you do that at home? Does it feel like sometimes at work or at home that everything is up to you or that everything that happens affects you in some way? Or maybe it's up to you to do everything. You assume that everything that has to get done is you have to do it because you're the most important. You're a King Joram, so if there's a healing, well, obviously you're supposed to do it for some reason, right? Does that feel like sometimes maybe you, you feel like and you assume that about yourself? I think one of the first things that I did when I took over as lead pastor here was I actually amended my job description, uh, which is always a great start to a job. Now <laughs> that you've hired me, let's change this. Uh, I think one of the first things that I did was because can we look at this list of duties because I don't think I can do everything on there. With everything that was on there and everything that our church wanted to see and wanted to happen, wanting to move forward, wanting to grow, wanting to add new programs, wanting to do outreach, wanting to be in the community, all of these things, there was just some stuff that needed to be cut. And instead of being arrogant and thinking like, yes, I am the solution to this, I looked at it and said, there's just some stuff here that I can't do, and there's stuff that I also just am not good at on this list. And maybe there's somebody who could do this better. Maybe it's not up to me to do everything. So one of the first things I did was I talked with the deacons board, and I said, could you help with some of these things? And I said, particularly, could you do all the visitation? I said, I'm awful at visiting people. I'm, I'm just awful at the regular visitation, to having coffee and just chatting. I said, I'm really bad at small talk. I'm really terrible at those things. And people in this church want that. And I said, rather than just saying, that's not getting done because I don't like it, I said, why don't we get people who, who are gifted at it, who are good at it, to do it? And I said, that way I won't feel like I have to do everything and that'll still get done. I asked for help was one of the first things that I did. And the deacon said, absolutely, no problem. We would love to do that. And they took it on immediately, and they did it, and they still do it. They were the ones in the pandemic making regular phone calls, dropping things off, doing all of that stuff that there was just no way I was going to be able to do. And that freed me up to put my focus fully into some other things and to do a better job at the rest that I was focused on. If you think everything is up to you to do, if you think everything that gets done affects you, it will not be long before you start to crumble under that weight, before you crumble under that pressure. It's not up to you to do everything. Not everything is about you. 
it is okay to share the load around and ask for hands. One time I was in a meeting talking about sharing the load. We were, it was, a, it was a, a meeting we were doing, like, who's going to do this, who's going to do that? And we were looking at it, and one person said, well, if I don't do it, no one's going to. And I think at some point we've all said that in our life. Well, if I don't do it, no one will. Right? And so we think, well, I have to do it then. And we stopped, and I said, man, if, if God wants that thing to get done, like, it's going to get done with or without us. Uh, he's going to find a way to make this thing happen, even if we don't do it, because we are not important enough to be able to stop God's plan from happening in this world. No one of us is able to be like, well, I can put a stop on everything God wanted. God's plans are going to happen with or without us. So we don't have to be so arrogant as to assume that all of God's plan depends on us. So the first thing that I think we do, or we have to do, to overcome a sense of self-importance is to stop thinking that everything hinges on you or that it's up to you to do everything. You're not the centerpiece. You're not God. You don't have to bear that load. God will bear that load. So we're going to look at the next person that we see in the story. So, and this is Naaman. So Naaman has just met the king. The king has freaked out. He's torn his clothes. And then we see Elisha. Elisha comes into the story. And he hears the king has torn his clothes in distress. And he says, like, king, what are you doing? What is going on that has got you this upset? And he basically says, well, king, send this guy to me. Like, send, send this Naaman guy to me. And I'll see what I can do about it. And so Naaman goes to Elisha. And it says he sees him at his house. But if you read what actually happens, Elisha does not even come and greet Naaman. Elisha doesn't come to the door. Naaman stops at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sends a messenger. And the messenger goes to the door to meet Naaman, and the messenger says to Naaman, says, go down to the Jordan River, wash yourself seven times, and then you'll be clean. Now, this is a really bold move for Elisha to do, because Elisha didn't really say anything. He just sent a messenger to convey a message. And Elisha didn't really give him any blessings or confer the respect and honor that would have been due a commander in this time. But he's a general. It would be kind of like if, you know, the prime minister showed up at your house and you sent your kid to be like, well, tell him uh, I'm busy because I'm barbecuing, so come back later. Right? It's kind of a big insult. So Elisha has kind of just insulted this top commander in the Syrian army. And Naaman feels that insult. He feels that frustration. He came all this way to be healed by this prophet that his servant had told him, and the prophet won't even come see him or talk to him. And so I'm going to pick it up at verse 11 and 12. And it says, But Naaman was furious, and he went away, and he said, Behold, I, he will sure, I thought he will surely come out to me. This prophet will surely come out to me. He will surely stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. He will wave his hand over the place, and he will cure this leper. And he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, much better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not just wash in them and be clean? And he turned away and he left in a rage. See, Naaman was mad. He was furious that this prophet did not come out and give him some honor or respect. And all he says was, go wash in this river. Right? Elisha told him to go, or Elisha's messenger told him to go wash in the river. Now, the river Jordan is not and was not a clean river. Right? It would be almost like if I said, go wash in the Grand River. It's kind of a dirty river. It's muddy. It's collecting all the farms. It feeds all the farms. And so it's not exactly a nice, clean, mountain-fresh water. And so this is beneath Naaman. This is really beneath him. This is not something that someone who is so highly honored and respected should have to do, to go bathe in a river without even getting to speak to the prophet. See, Naaman's self-importance here said he was too good for this. He's too good to do this. This thing, this washing in a dirty river all by himself, the prophet not even coming to see him, this is all beneath him. 
He's too good for this. This is all beneath him. And I think sometimes we act like that too. We act like things are beneath us. I used to work as a sport check, or at SportCheck when I uh, was, was a youth pastor. I worked there as a department manager. And we had a few different store managers that are kind of in charge of everyone. And uh, I had a few come and go in my 10 or 12 years there. But the best one that I ever had was named Ashley. And this was because Ashley was the store manager, but she also knew that she wasn't better than anyone else. She knew she was not better than any other employee. If the toilets needed cleaning, other managers would find one of the, the newest staff and just force them to do it. Say, it's your turn. You have to clean the toilets. Go clean the toilets. There's no, there's, no, there's no talking about this. Go do it. Whereas Ashley would generally say, hey, the toilets need to be cleaned. Does anyone, is anyone able to do it? Is anybody willing to do it? If no one spoke up on the microphone, in about two minutes, you could see Ashley with her gloves and buckets on her hands and knees scrubbing the toilets in the washroom. She didn't complain about it. She didn't say, well, this task is beneath me. I'm the store manager. I'm so important. Someone less important than me should be doing this. She simply got up, did what needed to get done. The idea that you think something is beneath you is a sign that you're struggling with too much self-importance. The truth is that when it comes to serving others, nothing is beneath us. And when it comes to serving the Lord, nothing is beneath us. All we have to do is look at Jesus to see the truth about this statement. In the gospel, we see Jesus at three points, or at one point in the three different gospels, we see him bending over and washing the feet of his disciples. They had been out walking all day in sandals and in dirt roads. Their feet would have been dirty and disgusting. And Jesus is on his hands and knees and he's washing their feet. This was servant's work. And if you didn't have servants, then it was certainly a woman's work. And Jesus, the son of God, is on his hands and feet. The Lord himself is on his hands and feet washing people's feet. And when he gets asked about why he does things like this, he says, the son of man came to serve, not be served. And that needs to be our attitude. Instead of saying things like, that's beneath me. I'm too important to waste my time doing something like that. We need to say, I would love to do that. And when I'm finished, where else can I serve next? See, Naaman thought he was too good to wash in a dirty river. But we see actually in the story that his servants convince him to give it a shot. His servants say to him, they say, well, Naaman, if the prophet had sent a message to do something really hard and really, really extravagant, you would have done it, right? You would have given it. So this is really simple. Why not at least give this a shot? We came all this way. We might as well give it a shot, boss. And so Naaman actually does give it a shot. He actually kind of overcomes his sense of self-importance there and says, Okay, like we did come all this way, I'll give it a shot, right? And I can just picture him just begrudgingly walking into the room and be like, okay, one, I'm clean, walk out. And like after seven, kind of freaking out when he actually is healed immediately, right? He's so taken aback after he is healed that he actually comes back to Elisha. He comes back to the house and he says, I'm so taken aback. He says, I actually, could I have some ground? I want some dirt. I want two bags of dirt to take back home with me so I can worship your God on his ground. He says, can I have some of that dirt? And he offers everything he brought. He says, I've got everything I got. You can have it, Elisha. And Elisha, of course, says, no. He says, no, I don't. We don't need any of that. Take it all. And he goes, here's some dirt. And now finally, we get to the third person in this story that I want to look at. I want to look at Elisha's servant and how he acts here. See, Elisha says no to all the gifts from Naaman. He says, we don't need those things. He says, you can take those back. And he sends Naaman back to Syria with some blessings. He says, go about your way. Yes, you can worship God. Here's some dirt. And he says, well, you can, you know, here's, here's all the things. Have some blessings. But Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant, is not so sure that he doesn't deserve to be paid. 
right? He feels like he should deserve to be paid. And so after Naaman takes off, he actually sneaks out. He sneaks off after Naaman, and he comes up on him, and he comes up to Elisha or to Naaman. He says, hey, look, uh, Elisha changed his mind, actually. Uh, some people came into town. We have need of some stuff. Uh, so we actually could use some of those gifts after all. So could I have some of those gifts? Uh, just a tenth. And Naaman, of course, is so happy to oblige. He says, what, how much did you ask for? Uh, here, take double. Take twice as much as that. You can have all of this. Go ahead. And so Gehazi goes home, and he hides the stuff so that Elisha won't find out. But of course, Elisha is a prophet, right? Elisha is a prophet. God reveals all kinds of things to him. So of course he finds out. And so Gehazi comes home, and Elisha says, where'd you go? And Gehazi says, oh, I, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't even leave. I've been here the whole time. And he straight face lies to the prophet about it. He lies right to his face about any of this. And if you read the story, what actually happens is you find out that Elisha, uh, or sorry, Gehazi is banned from the house. He's kicked out. And he actually, he is now the one covered in leprosy. It says he's white as snow in some translations. He's now, he's covered in leprosy and he is white as snow. See, Gehazi struggled with self-importance too. He seems to think that he should not do anything for free. If he's going to be doing something, he deserves to be paid for it because his time is more valuable. He he feels that nothing that he does, he shouldn't get recovered for or compensated for. He says, we did work. We helped this guy. We did a miracle. We deserve, especially such a rich guy. He says, we deserve some pay for this. So he sneaks off. Verse 26, Elisha says to him, he says, is it a time to receive money? Is it a time to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? He says, basically, he says, is this the time to be paid? There's a time to be paid for the things that we do, and there's a time not to be paid. And this is one of the times where we, we don't need to be paid for this. This is one of those times where we don't have to be paid. He says, this is one of those times that simply we're just serving the Lord because that's what we're called to do. See, sometimes we get paid for what we do, and sometimes we just serve because that's what we're called to do as Christians. Uh, we were, I was talking with a group of youth pastor friends recently about what we're doing in the pandemic and how things are going. And I don't remember how we got onto the topic, but I started to talk about it. I said, well, uh, you know, I, I was cutting the church's grass one day. And he said, well, you, you cut the church, like your house, right? You were cutting your grass. I said, no, I actually cut the church's grass a lot of weeks. I said, uh, I said we wanted to save some money. And so we've got a ride on mower. And most weeks I'm out there and I cut the grass. And I said, uh, and I said, this just is what it is. And he said, isn't that something that somebody less important should do? And he said, isn't that kind of beneath a lead pastor to cut the church's grass? And I kind of laughed. I said, well, it's actually, I don't use it as part of my 40 hours. I said, the church doesn't pay me to be a lawn provider or a lawn care person. So I said, it's, it's not within my 40 hours. I do it on my day off or I do it on extra days or whatever. And I said, this is just extra that I serve God. And he seemed confused. He said, well, but like you're going to volunteer, like you should get paid for that if you're working for the church, Right. He said, if you volunteer, shouldn't you, you should be paid for it. And I kind of laughed. I said, if we paid everyone, all the volunteers for everything that we did, well, first they wouldn't be volunteers. I said, if we paid everyone, there's no way we could function. And I said, and if, if no one did anything unless they were paid, I said, then there's also no way we would be able to function. I said, it takes 100 volunteers to do all the things that get done at this church. And I said, and out of the 125 people that go here, four are paid. And I said, and without the rest, there's no way anything else could get done. And I had to kind of, later on, I was wondering about that, and it kind of was bothering me, and it stuck with me, like, 
How is this a sentiment that we, we have, is that we have to be paid or we're not going to do it? And I wonder what he does if he's at a restaurant and, and the topic of Jesus comes up or church comes up and he says, you know, he's at, he's at dinner and he says, well, hold on, I'm not on the clock. Uh, you have to call me between business hours tomorrow, you know, if we have to talk about this. Right? I wondered, like, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we navigate these things? I thought about that and thought, like, only doing ministry that we're paid for leaves a lot left to be done. And I said, we would be in so much trouble if that's how we did things. Our volunteers are truly what keep this church running. Our volunteers are the ones who do all of the heavy lifting, all the dealing with the insurances done by volunteers, all the dealing with the government done by volunteers, the ones who budget all of the money done by volunteers, the ones who cut the checks, who send the pastors our pay done by volunteers, the people who clean the church, the people who run a bunch of the small groups, volunteers. It's the volunteers who are here gardening and weeding and taking care of the property. The ones who are here meeting with contractors. They're the ones who are here at 7 a.m. to let people into the building. I said, it's the volunteers who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. And I said, and I've never had one of them come to me and say, hey, Luke, uh, I would love to be on the deacons board. How much does it pay? Right? I, would love to, I would love to come help out at youth group. What's the pay like? I said, if we have a view... Of only, or that says to ourselves that I only do ministry if I'm paid for it, or I only serve if I paid for it, then we have too high of a view of self-importance. We're like Gehazi. We've severely misunderstood what Jesus means when he says, I came to serve, not to be served. He didn't come to get paid, he came to serve. <clears throat> Jill Brosco, sorry, Jill Brosco, she said, um, she wrote this actually in a book. She said, you might not be involved in full-time ministry, and yet if you are a believer, your basic job description is the same as mine. It is to be full of the Holy Spirit and to pour yourself out to others in love and in ministry. And I love that, that we all share that same job description as Christians. We're to be full of the Holy Spirit and we pour ourselves out to others in love. And I think that's a great way to put it when you get your hands dirty for Jesus. Cleaning toilets, serving in soup kitchens, gardening, weeding, vacuuming, filling up the little free pantry, all of these things is pouring yourself out in love to others and in love to God. I think at times a lot of us will or maybe have struggled with too much self-importance, a sense of sometimes the world might revolve around us. Here we saw Naaman, King Joram, and Gehazi have all struggled with it in a different way. Now, Naaman overcame it, right? Naaman listened to his servants. They said, hold on, boss, give it a shot. And when he overcome that or overcame that sense of self-importance, he was actually healed for it, right? And we see King Joram. King Joram had a sense of self-importance, like, what is going on? This is all about me. And Elisha says, well, here, come to me. And Joram lets Elisha carry the load, and that stress is now gone. But Gehazi didn't. Gehazi didn't overcome the sense of self-importance, and he actually suffered greatly for it. And so we, too, need to overcome our sense of self-importance. No one's license plate out in the parking lot says God on the front of it. And we need to sometimes stop acting like we're God. We're not God. Only He is. We need to not think that we're so important that everything depends on us. We need to let others share the load, too. Let others lift. We're not the only ones who are called to do heavy lifting. And most importantly, we need to be in it for the right reasons. We need to serve for the right reasons. When we serve, it's not about so that we can get glory, but it's so that God gets the glory. Let's remember Jesus' words, and we'll make them our own words. The Son of Man came to serve, not be served. And so then we, too, are here to serve, not be served. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for Jesus' example. 
God, sometimes it is so easy to think that we are here to consume or to be served, and we forget that, Lord, we're here to serve others. So God, would you give us a heart like Jesus as one that gets us on our hands and knees and washes the feet of others, a one that puts others first, a one that is, is willing to serve no matter what it takes, that no task is beneath us or no task is too small for us. God, would you give us hearts that just says, where can I serve you next, God? Where can I love on others next? Would you give us that kind of heart? And in that way, would we reach the community around us as we serve them and we serve you? We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.